We study billionaires, and this is episode 45 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, this is going to be a really fun episode for everyone because we're talking with Mike Figliolo, and he has a book that he recently wrote, and it's called Lead Inside the Box. Uh, Mike and I have talked in the past, and we have a mutual friend whose name is Jan Rutherford. And Jan uh, wrote this book called The Littlest Green Beret. And Jan introduced me to Mike because Mike is a West Pointer from uh, 1993. Is that right, Mike? 1993? That's correct. So you were uh, 10 years earlier than I. And uh, so I was was class of 2003. And so we're just really pumped to have you on the show. And I'm really excited to talk about this book because you wrote a book that is really kind of ironic. I, I really like the title and I think that the, the title is, is pretty uh, fun the way that you did that. But this is like value investing for leadership. And so one of the things that we do that Stig and I talk about all the time is leadership being one of the key principles for Warren Buffett in the way that he invests. And we're huge value investors. Our audience are big value investors. And so one of the, the things that's really hard to do as an investor is to gauge the power and the effectiveness of good leadership. And that's your forte, is leadership. Because after uh, Mike Mike went to West Point, he was in the Army for a little bit, and then he got out after five years, correct, Mike? Yes. Okay, so you were out after five years, and then you have just been uh, really killing it uh, on the outside as a, as a business individual. And you went and you worked for McKinsey Company, which I'm sure everyone knows uh, McKinsey out there. You went and got your um, MBA at Dartmouth College, and then uh, you started your own consulting company. And his consulting company, uh, their specialty is training executive management and leadership. So he is just a wealth of information in this area. And what's going to be really neat for our audience is going to be able to pick up on the key points that you discuss. And how do you describe great leadership whenever you're looking at a business? And that's what we're really going to be talking about today. So, so exciting to have you on, Mike. And we're really excited to dive into some of these questions and talk about uh, what you talk about in your book. It's my pleasure. And it's a really fun topic to take this look at investing in your people, because when you look at the capital budgeting process, we spend thousands of hours trying to figure out where we're going to invest our money. And then we spend pretty much zero trying to figure out where we're going to invest something even more finite and valuable, which is our time as leaders. And that's the whole premise behind the book is doing that thinking about where you're going to invest your time and energy as a leader. Okay. So uh, the thing I I briefly touched on was the title of your book. And I like that because it's really ironic. So the name of his book is Lead Inside the Box. So most people are always saying to think outside the box, but the title of your book is Lead Inside the Box. So as a note of irony, your catchy title is definitely Outside the Box. And um, I know that I've probably uh, confused everyone with how many times I've said that, but could you explain to our listeners the premise of your book and your experiences as an executive leadership consultant and how it kind of all culminated with this book. Yeah. So first of all, I hate the phrase, think outside the box, as does my co-author, Victor Prince. So it was a little bit of a cheeky way to take a jab at that. Um, The title itself, Lead Inside the Box, 
The box is what we call the leadership matrix. And that leadership matrix is a two by two matrix where we look at how much time and energy leaders are investing in a person. So this is individual leadership. And we call that leadership capital because it's an investment. And then you look at the corresponding results that you get out of the individual and that forms the other axis of the two by two. So it's an input output model. You end up with four quadrants, four behavioral archetypes that we look at. And within that, you've got subcategories. And what the whole book is about is first, understanding where you're investing. Second, understanding the results or the return that you're getting on that investment. And then third, figuring out how to move people and change their performance so that you get to a higher return box. And we try to make it really tactical, straightforward and immediately applicable. So, uh, Mike, how do we do that in, in, in practice? If we return to the concept of uh, leadership capital that you just uh, briefly introduced before, and as far as I understand, this is about using your resources, whether that's time or money, whatever that is as a leader, uh, most efficiently. But how do we apply that as a leader in our daily work? So within the book, we actually drive it down to the level of very specific assessments that leaders can do to say, where are you spending your time and energy and are you over investing or under investing as you do it? So we look at things like whether a leader is deciding and how are you behaving there? How are you developing your people? How are you running the team and setting goals and setting direction? So we look at what we call the leadership services that a leader is providing to their team. And then you ask yourself the question for given where this individual is in their career, in their development, in their responsibilities, are you investing more than you should or less than you should in their behavior and in their performance? So that assessment, we actually boil it down to a really detailed level in terms of the activities that leaders can do. And then we later obviously talk about how they can redeploy that time and energy more efficiently. So, Mike, the thing that I really got away from uh, reading through your book was really it's like value investing for uh, leadership. Um, you're going out and you're looking at all the different people that might work under you as a, as a top manager. And you're saying that person's adding a lot of value. That person is really taking a lot of my time and not adding much value. And you're, you're looking at that from like a quantitative and a qualitative piece. And then you're optimizing it so that you're just getting pure performance and you're maximizing that performance and you're maintaining that motivation within your people. And I guess my question is, how did you uh, arrive at this formula? Was this something that you learned at McKinsey? Is it something you learned back when you were at West Point? Um, or did it just mature through your lifetime as you just continued to see uh, example after example of going into these different companies? So I think you're spot on in terms of thinking it as value investing. But the one difference here is when I go out and buy a stock, I can't really change the company's performance. All I'm doing is betting that I'm buying it at a price where the management team is going to change performance and I got value from it. What's interesting here is you as the leader can and should be changing performance. So if you have an individual who is low performing, but you're not investing a lot of time and energy in them, if you change your investment strategy, and you work with them differently, you can improve their performance and drive a higher ROI on that investment, which is, which is pretty fascinating to think about you having an ability to change your portfolio's performance. In terms of where it came from, um, I, I think it's bits and pieces of a lot of different experiences. So Victor, my colleague, Victor has a very similar background to mine. 
He, uh, you know, has a great educational background, spent time in government service. He was a Bain guy. Uh, he was a contemporary of mine at Capital One and has had some government service since then. And he and I have been working together at my firm, Thought Leaders, for a while. And Victor came to me one day and said, hey, Mike, you've written a book uh, previously, and I want to run an idea by you to get your thoughts on if this is possibly a book as well. And he ran the, the notion of the leadership matrix in front of me. And I said, first of all, there's absolutely a book here. And second of all, I think it's something that's going to hit a pain point with a lot of the folks that I coach and train. Uh, and then Victor asked me to co-author it with him. So that's sort of the origin of it. And as the framework was under development and we were writing it, I was very much applying it to executive coaching engagements that I was in the midst of or had previously completed to essentially validate the framework. So it's sort of the summation of Victor's 20 years, my 20 years, both in uh, military or government leadership, corporate leadership, and then layering on it our understanding of training and development from the decade or so that I've been running thought leaders. So, I, I mean, I'll just throw it out there. Having read through this, I was looking at each of these chapters and I'm like, man, these guys get it. Like, this is really, I like how simple the approach is, but uh, at the same time, it's it's really got a lot of depth to it. And it's you can tell it's been really thought out. And if a person could put that into application and really start thinking in, in terms of, hey, I'm making this investment, but I'm making this continual investment in a person that isn't going to give me the return back versus, hey, I can do a little bit here and I'm going to get a much bigger solution or an 80% uh, movement. Uh, we like to refer to the uh, Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, all the t as much as possible. But <laughs> um, I, I saw a lot of that in your book. You reminded me a lot of a person that maybe has gone through like Lean Six Sigma and optimization within a, a company. And it was just really a fantastic read. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, for the comments. And, and second, yeah, it is about making those wiser investments. And too many leaders out there will sit there and say, well, I want to go out and hire a whole bunch of rising stars and high performers. And that's how I'm going to have an awesome team. And the thing is, you're stuck with the people you get, right? It's very rare that we get a chance unless we're forming our own company or we're brought in at extremely senior levels in an organization to say, well, I'm going to get rid of everybody here and I'm going to create my own team. More often than not, it's Hey, here's your, you know, welcome to the company. Here's your team. Go. And you have to play the hand that you're dealt. So the book really helps leaders assess that team and then figure out where do I invest? How do I change their performance and get them really delivering at the level that I want? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So my, my next question is about bad leadership. And I'm pretty sure that's something that, you know, everybody experienced, either if you were the leader or if you were an employee. But I think that many people, and that is definitely including myself, you know, I can be quick to blame others. So my question to you would be, how do you personally look back at a situation as a leader and objectively evaluate what you could have done differently? So first of all, I think there's a great de degree of maturity for anybody to even be able to do that. You have to admit that I was wrong. I could have done things differently. My way isn't always perfect. And there's just a level of self-awareness that has to come with it. And if you don't bring that maturity to it and the ability to set aside value judgments around, gee, I'm a good person or a bad person, but instead look at it as why well, behave this way and I could have done this differently. Um, you won't get there if you can't bring that maturity. So that's first is really getting yourself in the right frame of mind. Second is then looking at 
the situation. And then here's one of the big insights that comes out of the book is so many times we look at a given situation and say, well, I did this when I led Preston and here's how I behaved and it worked out great. Therefore, I'm going to use the same exact approach when I lead Stig. And okay, the problem is Preston is not the same as Stig, but I'm applying the same tool to very different situations. So what we try to get to in the book is helping leaders understand Look at the situation you're in with that individual, and there are going to be different techniques that are appropriate or inappropriate. So what that then enables leaders to do when they're going through that situation of saying, hey, there was some bad leadership here on my part. It allows them to look at that situation objectively and say, I behaved this way. I did these things. And here was the result. And here was a different way I could have or should have behaved that would have gotten me a different result. So I really like boiling it down to the level of individual behaviors because those are the things that you can observe and change. Yeah. It's amazing the correlation between just basic leadership and investing and where people might apply one type of technique in the past with investing and they think that they can just apply that again during the next uh, point in time where they see a similar circumstance and and it's not. And you see the exact same thing on the leadership front. I know I see that uh, with the different leadership experiences that I've had as well. So that's a really good point. On the first thing that you said, Mike, as far as just being open to the suggestion that, hey, I could be wrong. So there's this uh, billionaire that we study and we talk about him all the, all the time on a show. His name is Ray Dalio. And Ray really took this to like an extreme level. Are you familiar with Ray Dalio? I'm just curious if you know uh, who I'm. No, I'm actually to. not. So I'm very interested to hear. So there's this guy. His name's Ray Dalio. He's a billionaire. Uh, he, he runs the biggest hedge fund in the world. And he took that idea to like this total extreme where he basically came up with the idea that I am most likely wrong, uh, no matter what I say or no matter what I think. And he, he has framed his entire company. It's called Bridgewater Associates. He has framed his entire company around this idea of, hey, here's an idea. It's most likely wrong. And I want you to tell me why it's wrong. And then whenever he can't find anybody who's really saying it's wrong for all these, you know, these five different reasons, then he's more of the opinion that maybe he is, in fact, right. It's just a really kind of uh, fascinating approach. and You don't really see it in executive leadership too often. So with all that said, uh, it really comes down to uh, my next question and why we're talking about uh, Ray Dalio as a billionaire. And so we're really curious. Do you have and I know you've worked with just countless individuals at the executive level. So. We're really curious if you've ever had a billionaire, any good billionaire stories that demonstrate this idea of optimizing their leadership uh, capital within their companies. You know, it's really funny to watch leaders at all levels demonstrate these skills. And I've worked with several very senior executives. They didn't disclose to me their net worth, but I'll put them in that same sort of stratosphere. And just watching them interact in different situations. And I think this is the differentiator is that they can sit there and have somebody come into their office or interact with them. And you see them pause. You, you almost see them visibly pause and assess, OK, here's the problem that's being presented to me in terms of this person's behavior or the issue that they're trying to solve. And then you watch an hour later, they interact with somebody else and they do the same thing and they size up that situation. That pause, I think, ends up being that differentiator because what they're doing is saying, I have all these instincts that say I should apply my tried and true tools and approaches here because they've always worked in the past. And what they're doing with that pause is saying, wait a minute, let let me check my instincts for a moment before I act and really understand the situation I'm in. 
So I'm not going to get into, you know, names of those individuals, but the, the ones who have done it have been true artists with it. And then the ones who don't, right, and aren't as successful are the ones who say, oh, I've seen this a million times before. And they start talking before the person is even finished explaining the situation. And they're going to invariably miss things. And I've seen them miss things because they're forming that opinion too quickly. And they're saying, I've been here. I've done that. But the problem is, well, the world is different or this situation is different. And that's where you're going to miss. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Mike, I'm, I'm really curious about this because you know, on one side, you're talking about in your book about this formula. You have a very quantitative approach in many ways to leadership, uh, which I find really fascinating. And then on the other side, you also bring this up about leaders you know, acting on the instincts. Um, so. I'm just curious, like in your opinion, what do you think, like how should leaders weigh like the quantitative approach with say instincts? So what we like doing is just asking questions and I I don't want to make it seem like, wow, there's this huge quantitative model behind the scenes that's driving this. We ask some questions and ask people to do some very simple scoring to get them looking in the right place. So like I said, it's a two by two matrix. We wanna get them to say, okay, you should be looking in the upper right corner or the lower left corner based on a few really simple answers. So we use the quantitative stuff just more to direct people on the type of situation they might be in. And then we very quickly shift over to the qualitative judgment-based space where, okay, does this sound like the situation you're in? If it is, Does it sound more like this or more like that? Are these the behaviors you're seeing or are those? 
And it really gets into stopping and thinking about the actual situation you're in, then that guiding the recommendations on here are the actions that you can take. In all cases, I think we're arguing against following that first instinct and saying, look, this type of assessment doesn't take long to do. It requires you to stop and think about a couple of dimensions in terms of what you're having to put into the individual and what you're getting out of them in terms of results. And just that momentary pause is enough to check potentially a bad instinct to keep you from acting inappropriately in that situation and and deploying the wrong leadership techniques. And instead, that pause lets you say, "Okay, I need to do something different here. Or the pause may well say, hey, I need to follow my instinct. My first instinct was correct. But again, we have that moment of validation where we're saying that's the approach to follow. I I really like that point because a lot of these leaders at the top level, they're very calm and they're extremely thoughtful. And I think that that's the thing that I know I have an appreciation for whenever I'm around a great leader is like they, like you said, they just, they take that pause, they think about it, they think about all the different variables, they think about all the different people that they could maybe access before they just get excited and um, don't act in a calm manner. I don't know. I just, I just find calm being such a key element to success in leadership. And I'm based on your comment. I'm assuming you agree with that, Mike. Absolutely. And, and there are very few situations where you have to spring into action with your cat like reflexes. It's like, look, unless the building is on fire, uh, it doesn't you know, you can probably pause and think about it. And very few things require an answer within an hour or within even a day, when you're looking at some of these leadership decisions, you've got the time. So it's a mistake to rush it. And instead, just spend a little bit of time thinking before you act. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So our audience is obviously uh, really interested in investing. And so one of the things that we did on our Buffett's Books website is we were talking about these four rules that Warren Buffett has and and measuring the leadership as being one of those key uh, rules that he has. And what we did on the site, and this might not be the way you would maybe do it, and that's why I'm bringing up this question, is we use the key ratios more from like an accounting and from an analytical standpoint to say, if you see these stable results with the current ratio, with the debt to equity, and you see a company that over the past 10 years that really kind of managed their finances well, there's probably good leadership sitting behind that. But I was really curious to know kind of what your opinion as an outsider, somebody that doesn't own this controlling share in a publicly traded company, what can you really do as an investor to say, there's great leadership behind that company? What what are those things that you're looking for? So for me, it ends up being about the way you talk about the business and the way you think about the business. So I could very easily see a company that is churning out great financial results that has horrible leadership. And this goes to your investing time frame as well. Um, but I've been in organizations where people just beat the numbers out of their teams. And eventually the team leaves and you have turnover. And eventually the business hits that point where it runs into a crisis and they, and they fall apart because they don't have good leaders. And I've been in other organizations that drive the same exact ratios, but they're leading very differently. They're treating their teams differently. They're empowering people. Um, They're making the right investment decisions in terms of investing in their people, investing their time. So I think it can be really dangerous to just look at those financial metrics and equate it to good or bad leadership. I think there's correlation, not necessarily causality. 
So for me, I'd much rather get into, you know, if I, if I had a chance to talk to management and even if you can't talk to management, a proxy is just reading their earnings releases and listening to their earnings calls and listening to how they talk about their people and the actions that they're taking and the, and the way they're thinking about investing in the business. So for me, running a training firm, you know, one of the best uh, examples I can use to illustrate this point is I have some clients who say, hey, we're all set to do the training. And then I get a phone call a few weeks later and they say, hey, we need to defer the training for three months because we're going to make our numbers for this quarter. And I kind of scratched my head going, wait a minute. So the training has a positive ROI, correct? And the answer is yes. And now you're telling me you're going to defer that investment because of some arbitrary number that's out there set by someone on Wall Street. So you're letting outsiders run your investment decisions in terms of improving your people. And instead, you're going to defer a positive investment by three months, six months, nine months, however long. The organization, and I would, I would say that's management, that's not leadership, right? You're letting the numbers drive your business decisions. Um, as opposed to organizations that say, hey, we know that we get a return on this investment. We're going to invest in our people now. We understand there's negative effects, quote unquote, from a budget standpoint. We're going to be over on our budget, on our spend. But it was a positive investment to make. So it really ends up being that mindset of how are you thinking about investing in your people? How are you thinking about growing the capabilities of the organization? And where you see organizations, and I've seen this so many times with our clients over the years, when, for example, uh, we had one client got bought out by a private equity firm. The first thing they did was gut the training budget. They said, basically, no one's getting trained for the next three years. (laughs) <laughs> and we, we immediately, right, we immediately walked away from that organization. Now, the financial results were like amazing. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. But over, you know, that three year period, so much talent left the organization. Now, that private equity firm didn't care because they were going to flip the company in two and a half to three years. So their investment horizon, they made it absolutely the right financial decisions. But I'd submit that was management and and really poor leadership. They lost so much talent from that organization long term. So this is these are the risks, I think, of just looking at things purely on a quantitative basis. And instead, you got to look at what are the individual decisions they're making related to their people. Well, I think you gave a huge nugget there, because what you're what you're really getting at is when you see a business's leadership turnover, that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing. And I think a lot of people as investors, especially as an outside investor that has no controlling piece in this, um, when that management takes that turn, you've really got to keep your head on a swivel as to what kind of changes are they coming in and doing and what are they disrupting? If their numbers are really good, um, that should be maybe some red flags. What are they compromising? What What did they do to knock this thing out of balance in order to make those numbers so good so fast? And what are they going to compromise on the on the tail end of that in the long run because they made those decisions? And that is a really fantastic point. I love that. Yeah, if you can if you can actually get deep enough into their financials and you can pull up their year over year training per associate spend, um, you know, you just look at total number of employees. You look at the dollars that they're dedicating towards training and development, and assuming they haven't changed any of their accounting principles. Um, or how they're allocating stuff. If all of a sudden you see that training investment drop precipitously, you know exactly where they're pulling it from. And I will tell you exactly what's going to happen is your best people are going to leave that company. The poor ones are going to stick around because they don't have alternatives. 
And the good ones are going to go elsewhere because they want to go and go work at companies that are going to invest in their careers, in their developments. So short term, it's going to be awesome. But in the three to five year horizon, you're going to hit the wall. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a really neat metric you're talking about, Mike. So you're looking at uh, how much they invest per employee. Um, so as a stock investor, and I never ever thought about using this metric. So that's definitely helpful for me. Um, I'm just curious, uh, which other metrics could I could I look at? So I think the um, you know the promo- if you get access to any sort of promotion data or hiring data that they've got in terms of associates that they're bringing in versus attrition, if they are willing to share any sort of voluntary attrition versus layoffs, right? And, and maybe you look at that is what's the population of the company been and has that been affected by layoffs or has it been just attrition, right? So it's very different when you shut down a division of a thousand people and the associate base is a thousand less than it was last year, or if there have been no layoffs and the associate base is a thousand associates less than last year, you may have a flight to quality of those higher potential individuals going somewhere else. And that ends up being the canary in the coal mine that things are not going well and your talented people are departing of their own volition. Uh, Mike, uh, could you tell us an entertaining personal story, could be either good or bad, of how you increase your output as a leader by optimizing your interactions with uh, key performers? So I've got one individual who I am an executive coach for, and he was lamenting how little time he had to spend with his team. He said, I'm just crushed. Um, you know, I, I have zero time in the day to work with my team. And when we talked about what he was doing, some of the activities he was performing were tasks that members of his team should have been doing instead. And when we got into it a little bit more, I, I understood he was putting a lot of time into this stuff. So he was making a big leadership capital investment in these people. And essentially what he was doing was work that should have been delegated or that he should have been forcing them to do rather than letting them dump it on his desk. And when we talk through that trade-off, he, he said, well, I don't have time to train them. It's just much easier for me to just do it rather than have to correct all the mistakes that I know they're going to make if they do it. And I said, okay, that makes sense today. That makes sense for today's workload. But what about over the course of three months, six months, nine months? How much time are you going to spend doing their work for them instead of the time to train them to do it properly and to force them to do their work by coaching them and developing them? And that was sort of his epiphany moment that said, I'm misallocating my leadership capital because I'm doing work I shouldn't. I need to wean them from my support and it's going to be painful and they're going to complain and they're going to be mad at me for making, you know, I'm making them do all this extra work, even though it's their work. But ultimately, once he was able to wean them, he freed up a bunch of his time that he could invest in other people and get a higher return on that investment because he was training people or spending more time with his star performers and getting them to the next level of performance. And it was just really fascinating, the insight that came from, do you understand the investment that you're making in these people? And and he really didn't appreciate that. But once he changed how he was investing, all of a sudden there was all this extra time that he had and, and he was able to do some awesome stuff with it by deploying that time differently. I love how you're talking about the time element because that's really the the most precious asset that every single person has, whether it's a leader or you look at the the time of your subordinates and optimizing that and just becoming more fruitful 
And that little time that you have every single day to make a difference is just so important. And so I guess the question I got for you, Mike, is in your book, you're really talking about how to optimize the time of your subordinates. But as a leader, what if you could just name three things that you really think are just so important for a leader to really become uh, better at what they do, better at managing their people, what three things would you say that people should really focus on to get a, a lot of value added into their own uh, leadership style? So I think one of the first things is you're not just looking at optimizing the time of your subordinates. What we're really getting at is how you're optimizing your own time as a leader and being deliberate about how you spend it. So I think the most successful leaders out there understand their calendar, understand where they're spending their time, and more importantly, why they're spending it there. So that's first and foremost. The second thing I'd encourage leaders to take away is really understanding the individual situation you're dealing with. So when Preston walks in my office with problem X, that's one type of situation. When Stig walks in with problem Y, it's going to be a very different situation. And understanding the individual circumstances is going to allow you to be more effective as a leader to change performance in that very moment. I think the third thing is really understanding as a leader how people move in this matrix. So the matrix is not static. Somebody's positioning on it is not static. And understanding that when I hire somebody who is a square peg and they're a low performer and I'm investing a lot of time in them because I got to coach them and train them and teach them, understanding that can be a really worthwhile investment because once they are trained and taught, you can spend less time on them. So you're reducing your investment and you're going to get better results out of them because they now have the skills. All of a sudden that became a very high ROI investment. And really because you understood somebody's trajectory within the matrix and what it gets, what it takes to get them to move to a different performance pattern or level of uh, performance. So Mike, how do you evaluate this? Because you, you were talking a lot in your book and also here during the interview about how to move people's performance, perhaps also move them uh, from the role that they're having in the team. Now, how much training should you put into and how much leadership capital should you put into an employee uh, compared to perhaps letting them go? Yeah. So for me, it's it's always a difficult trade-off when you move somebody out of the organization and letting them go. For me personally, as long as somebody's trying and I'm seeing progress in terms of their results are improving or I'm having to invest less of my time in them, if I'm seeing that progress and I don't have a burning platform elsewhere that, gee, they're just not progressing fast enough, um, I'm going to keep them around and keep growing them and developing them because that's what the organization is paying me to do is to build better people and build better leaders on my team. Now, the point at which you do uh, cut bait and, and we encourage people to look at moving somebody on a lot of times it's a motivational issue where the person says i'm just not going to try it's like well i've given you a few months and you've decided you're not going to try so we're going to move you on sometimes moving somebody on is also a function of you've trained them for so long and it's just clear they're never going to pick up this skill Therefore, you shouldn't just let them go, but instead find a more appropriate role for them within the organization. Can you change their job responsibilities and put them in a role where they can be more successful? So, for example, I'm really, really good at teaching and training on the podium. But if you gave me exceedingly complex you know, financial analysis to do, it's going to take me a little bit longer. So could you change my role from being 
the financial analyst to somebody who works in the training and development organization. So as long as you're seeing progress and that progress is at an acceptable rate, you hang on to them. And if they say, gee, I don't want to invest and work any harder, well, then it's time for you to go. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And I think another part that's important with what you're saying here, Mike, is if you're the type of leader that just wants to cut bait because the person, you're just really quick to let the person go, that sends a shockwave through the rest of the team that you might not necessarily be prepared for as a leader because um, everyone then is scared. Everyone's like, I'm the next guy to go, or you don't know what the the you know, the third and fourth order effects are whenever you are just quick to remove this person or this individual that appears to really be a problem for you. So I really like yeah. that response. And I think that it's really thoughtful that you continue to try to work them through um, because that sends a message to the rest of your team. And that's what that's what leadership is all about is is building that cohesive team. So I really like that comment. Yeah, nothing happens in a vacuum. Right. And when you make a decision to fire someone or move them on, that's going to be scrutinized and people will either say, gee, I'm next. And, the, and you can create that fear and hysteria. Um, sometimes you have to remember if you don't move them on and you should have people know that that person should be fired or moved to a different role. And if you're just going to tolerate it, well, those people are going to get frustrated, right? Because they say, well, I'm performing. Why does that person get to stick around? And honestly, some of the best leaders I've worked with, I've seen them take over teams quickly do their assessment, identify the people who probably should move on. They then put in place a plan to say, I'm going to give this person a chance. I'm going to try to get them to improve. And if they don't see the improvement over an agreed upon and reasonable period of time and the person isn't trying, then they move them on and they get them out of the organization. And when you hear people say, oh, thank goodness, somebody finally did something about that problem. It's the sign of a strong leader being in that role that they stepped up and, and took action. And it's all about balance. I mean, what you're describing is that that fine balance. It's really hard for a lot of people that are new into leadership is just you've got to find that happy medium between, hey, I'm not too aggressive, but at the same time, I'm being considerate and I'm building a team. And it's it's really great. I mean, that's such awesome comments. I love this. Yeah. And that goes back to the like pause and think, right? You, yeah. you don't go in and just start firing people or replacing them. You pause, you think, you evaluate and you take appropriate action for that particular situation. And that's why we were so passionate about writing the book, because we give that kind of guidance as to what you do in each of those situations in very uh, great detail. Uh, Mike, speaking about books, one of the questions we always like to ask our guests is, can you recommend one of your favorite books to the audience that you think they could benefit from and, and why? So one book that I have always loved and it's a very quick read it's called the obstacle is the way it's a quick read and it's really about understanding adversity and how you react to it and it goes back to stoicism in its earliest form and a lot of it would uh, remind you preston of uh, time at our rockbound highland home at west point and how do you deal with adversity and what do you do when you're faced with these insurmountable challenges and how you react to them and the ability to turn adversity not just into something that you get past but into something that builds you something that creates new opportunities for you um, it, it's a really fascinating read the first half of the book is really about case studies and folks who dealt with adversity and how they dealt with it but the real reason i fell in love with it was the second half of the book that says Here's how you can do that. Here's how you can apply those principles to other parts of your life. And personally, for example, uh, in the past year and a half, I've had a couple of heart attacks, which wasn't fun, 
The first one was my fault because of some habits that I had uh, fallen into. The second one was not my fault because I had fixed all those habits. But in both cases, you look and say, wow, that's really debilitating stuff. And that's a nasty obstacle. And I've turned it into great interview topics with people. I've turned it into coaching sessions with some of the people I'm coaching to help them be healthier. I've turned it into keynote presentations. And, and it's just been something that has become an opportunity for me that most people would look and go, oh my gosh, why are you even happy about that? It's like, well, I learned something from it and I turned it around. So the book is a great read that way to help people understand how to turn adversity into opportunity. I love it. Stig and I talk about that a lot on the show is just uh, sometimes the, the things that you think are the biggest detriments in your life end up being the biggest blessings in disguise. And it's really hard to, to see that when it's happening. I'm sure as you were experiencing the heart attack, the last thing you were thinking about is how this is going to be a good thing for my life. But as you look back at it and you see what, what emerged out of that, I, I love this take on this. I've never heard of this book, which is really exciting because Stig and I get a lot of the same uh, books recommended to us via email and on online and stuff. So it's really kind of cool. I, I'm interested to look this up. But uh, I love the point, Mike, and it's something that we definitely agree with you on. All right, Mike. So that's uh, that's all we have. I want to give you the opportunity for our audience. If everyone out there wants to learn a little bit more about you and your book, Lead Inside the Box, uh, where can they find out more about you? So the book has a full dedicated website at leadinsidethebox.com. There's even an assessment on there for assessing how you're spending your leadership capital and the results that you're getting. And this back to leaders pausing for a moment, thinking about the situation. So the assessment takes all of five minutes. So that's a great resource. And then about my company itself, uh, it's thoughtleadersllc.com. And that's where we talk about leadership on a regular basis on our blog. We've been writing it for eight years now. There's a ton of great articles on there. And I really encourage folks to take a look there for some good resources. That sounds fantastic. And I know everybody out there is wanting to improve their leadership ability. So if you want to improve your, your own individual leadership skills, or if you want to learn how to assess management's uh, leadership ability, if you're a stock investor, whatever the case might be, there's a lot to learn as you uh, go there to the sites that Mike recommended. And Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic interview. We really enjoyed this. Uh, it's my pleasure. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. You bet. Okay, so this is the point in the show where we take a question from a member of our audience, and this question comes from Jesse Colts. Hi, guys. This is Jesse Colts calling from New York City, New York. I had a quick question about calculating intrinsic business value. From Warren Buffett's letters in your show, it's clear that Buffett is a fan of net present value calculations and even traces that theory back all the way to the theory of investment value by John Burr Williams. Calculating intrinsic business value is obviously at the center of Warren Buffett style value investing, so it's a really important concept. Uh, I've also heard Manish Pabrai lean on this concept heavily. At the same time, I've heard Manish Pabrai say that he considers firing up Excel to be a bad sign for finding an investment, which I think he's using to convey the point that being too detailed can be a problem. You really want the numbers to smack you over the head when you know it's a good investment. That makes sense to me. But my question is, do you think typical value investors actually fire up Excel and complete discounted cash flow analysis to come to a precise number of intrinsic business value? Or do they more or less put their finger in the air and estimate that number using rough metrics? Thanks very much. 
So, Jesse, I love this question. This is a question that everybody's interested in, and that's intrinsic value. So I'm going to throw this over to Stig first uh, and see what he has to say. Then I'll uh, maybe piggyback on his comment. So, Jesse, I think the best way to really uh, understand the framework of this is to listen to Warren Buffett himself. And he's talking about his purchase of PetroChina, which he did in spring 2002. And, you know, he said that he never asked anyone about, you know, their opinion on PetroChina. He said that after reading the annual report, he said it was approximately worth $100 billion and the market cap was $35 billion. So, I mean, there you go. You don't need to do any finer math uh, when it comes to that. He even says that if the market cap was $40 billion, he would probably need to refine the analysis. But what he also says is that he doesn't like to do an analysis with three decimals. I mean, that's simply not the way to do it. And basically what he's saying is that you need to have a margin of safety. No, Warren Buffett might not be right that it's worth $100 billion. You know, it might only be worth $80 billion. And you know, another thing I really like about this, and, and this is a great read, and we'll be sure to, to link to this also in the show notes, is that he's saying, you know, if you can't make a value from the figures, you should probably go on to the next stock pick. You know, and I think that's another good point. Like, if you read the end report and you have no clue what the company is worth, it's probably not a type of company that you should, uh, should evaluate. So how did that investment turn out for him? Well, you know, fantastic. I mean, he invested $488 million and he sold that stake in, in 2007 for $4 billion. So that's actually like eight times his initial investment. I mean, that's, that's huge. And that's not to say that. And so there's a, there's a perfect example that Stig gave you where, um, you know, Buffett made the calculation. It came out to be a, a good calculation and what he thought was going to happen actually did. Now, he does have other picks that he thought were going to materialize into the intrinsic value, and they moved away from him. But uh, in aggregate, he has obviously been doing these calculations for a reason, and they've, they've worked for him for 50 years plus. Uh, so there's something to this. Now, the thing that I really liked about your question is you referenced John Burr Williams. And uh, John Burr Williams, I've read his book, The Theory of Investment Value. And this, is, this book was really amazing because this book was written back, I believe it was written back in the 1930s. And um, he, he wrote his doctorate thesis at Harvard. And the thing that's really fascinating is in this book, he talks about the value, basically t- calculating the intrinsic value. And Buffett has also read this book that John Burr Williams wrote. And really what John Burr Williams taught was how to do a discount cash flow analysis. That's what he's really teaching in this book. Now, when you read the book, it is highly mathematical, very involved. There's a lot of calculations in there. So I think what your question's really getting at is, is Buffett and these other guys that are calculating intrinsic value, are they really getting that far down into the math when they're calculating the potential value of the business? I would argue that they're not. I don't think that they are. I know I'm not personally doing that whenever I'm calculating the value of a business. But what I am doing is I am doing a, a discount cash flow model. Um, in fact, on buffettsbooks.com, we have our calculator that I personally use for individual stock picks. And that is and the page that I use is the discount cash flow uh, calculator. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes of this episode. If you're interested in checking that out and using it, we have a video that goes with it so I can show you how I go through, how I look at what the free cash flow of the business is, how I discount it back to today's value so that it matches the current market price and I can see what the yield is. I do that for any individual pick. 
Whenever I'm investing in an index, I am not doing that. I'm really just kind of looking at the P ratio and taking the inverse to figure out what I think the yield might be based on the current market prices. But I think that any uh, real hardcore value investor out there is definitely doing a discount cash flow analysis to try to determine what they think the value of the business is. And I think if you're not doing that, um, I really think that you are potentially jeopardizing and, and assuming some risk uh, by not knowing what you think the value of the company is worth. And I'm, I'm definitely positive that Papra is doing the same thing. Now, he might not fire up Excel, but he's probably smarter than Preston and I, so he can probably do that in his head. And I, I know that Warren Buffett said something like he can do intrinsic value calculation like five or 10 seconds, but basically he's doing the same thing. And I think that especially if you're a beginner in investing, I think it's really, really good uh, to use a calculator, especially in the beginning to see like if you're on the right path. But clearly, if you're evaluating a bunch of stocks, you know, just really to figuring out uh, where you should put your focus, um, I'm pretty sure that, that pretty soon you would come up with a rule of thumb of, of where to look. Yeah. When you look at enough companies and you see what the free cash flow is uh, and when you can see what it's trading for, it's it's kind of a quick uh, it's it's kind of a quick analysis uh, whenever you get onto it and you've looked at quite a few companies. But I think for the person that out there that's just starting out, that might sound like how is that even possible? But that's because a lot of people really haven't put in some hardcore assessments and have done it for years. Um, and that's why those guys have those quotes where they say, "I can do the intrinsic value in, in a matter of a minute." You know, that's how they can do it is because they've done it so many times. All right. So Jesse, we love this question. This was a fantastic question. We're going to send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And for anybody else out there, if you're like Jesse and you want to get your question played on the show, uh, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. So we've really enjoyed having Mike on the show. He gave us some fantastic tips on how to become a better leader, how to find management uh, in your investments that is going to continue to uh, provide value to you as an investor. And uh, we're just really thankful for him to come on the show. Make sure you check out his book, Lead Inside the Box. And uh, for anybody else out there, if you forget the title or whatever, go to our show notes and we'll have all the links there so you can uh, quickly access them. So we just want to thank everyone in our audience for listening. If you have time, please go to iTunes, leave us a review. That helps us out tremendously. And we really appreciate when people do that. Uh, But that's all we have for you guys this week. And we hope you guys have a fantastic week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 